0: So here we are in week four of this series, Cannonball, where we've been talking about doing a cannonball, making a big splash, but now here comes the hard part. We've been talking about it for three weeks, now the fourth week, and we're about to leave this behind and move to something else, but but this is really the difficult part, because now it's actually the part where you have to do it, where we actually have to leave talk behind and take a step, make a commitment to do something. Now, um, when I started off this series, I showed you a picture of what seemed impressive at the time. It was my 25-foot cliff jump. Um, and I showed you a picture of that. Remember that? Some of you were here. Now that we've seen a guy jump off of a platform 37 feet on his belly into a kiddie pool, it's not near so impressive. Um, but what I want to show you, even if you saw this before, is I want to show you what actually happened before the jump, Because I think you might be able to identify with this. So um, the story goes like this. Um, we have some video here up on the screen. Uh, Chris Toomey is there with me. And uh, we had been eyeballing this cliff and said we could jump off of it. And so we're up there sizing it up and putting together a strategy for it. And then Chris goes. Nice, Chris. Yeah, nice jump. Turned sideways, got some air, a little Michael Jordan kind of stuff. And then there I am. Now what you don't know right now is that we already cut out a full minute of this video where I've been standing up there just like that leaning on that tree, trying to talk myself into jumping. Chris made it look e- look easy. He's down there at the bottom saying, oh, my gosh, it's so fun. Dude, it's totally fine. But I'm looking down, and I'm seeing rocks. And I'm thinking, if I fall off this thing rather than jump, I'm going to break lots of things, lots of body parts I didn't even know I had. Um, so, but at the same time, Chris made it look fun. We've been talking about doing this, you know, for an hour while watching. And, and I'm like, okay, here I go. So he's, yeah, forget it. You know, like... Um, you know what I mean? Those moments in life where, where you want to do it so badly, you're like, this is going to be fun, this is going to be awesome, but you just can't get your, your you know, brain to commit. And so right now I'm telling my wife, forget it, I'm out, and she's going, are you kidding me? And they start taunting me, um, and you know, I'm thinking, if Chris did it, I'm never going to live this down, so I guess I better, um, and, and plus it looks fun, right? I mean, Chris made it look good, and I, I think I can try this too. So uh, finally, you know, I'm, I'm trying to convince myself, I'm telling my brain, just, just go, just jump, just let go, just leap. And finally I do. Yeah. It's exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Clap for me. It only took me two and a half minutes to finally jump, but I did it, right? Now, now you know exactly what that two and a half minutes feels like. When, when you have something in life that you know you want to do, your heart wants to do it, and yet you just can't seem to do it. You know, maybe it's walking into your boss's office and saying, hey, I appreciate the job, but, but I'm going to quit. I'm going to resign and try to do something else with my life. Even when you know it's the right thing, it's a scary conversation to have. Or, uh, you know, just this last weekend, I had a couple up here getting married, and they're a good couple, and I marry couples all the time, and, and, yet, and yet there's, that, there's that, that nervousness of actually taking that step, making the commitment. See, we all know what that feels like, those moments in life where where you know something is right, it's the right thing to do, you want to do it, you you want to be all in, and yet the actual commitment, taking the leap, even when it's something good, is a little more than difficult. But here's what I want to say to us today, and I think you know this, that nothing in the world changes through just good ideas or good intentions. That nothing good happens in the world without commitment. Commitment. And so over the last three weeks, we've been talking in this series about three things that can help you make a a big splash in the world around you. We said, if you can become culturally relevant, if you can be biblically sound, and if you can be outwardly focused, God will use you to make a big splash in the world around you. So we've been talking, and we've been talking, and we've been talking, but now comes the moment of truth. Are you willing to leave the talk behind and actually to commit? I've got one more chance to bring this together for you. I pray that God does do that, that he brings it together for you, because I believe this is so important. And so today we're going to look at at the story of three guys in the Bible who embody this so well. I know talk is good, but examples are better. And so I want to show you the story of three guys who live out these values so well, they commit to them even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of a fiery furnace. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe you've heard about them before Maybe you've never heard about them before. doesn't matter if if this is an old story to you or a new story. Today we're going to dive in and uh, learn about the power of a commitment, the necessity of making a commitment. Now before we dive into Daniel chapter 3, that's where we're going to go today, um, I want to just give you a little bit of background on who these guys are and why they are in the situation we find them in in just a moment. Now to start off, I, I told you their names. They're Shadrach, Meshach. And Abednego, but at first, that's not their their birth names. Their names actually were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were Hebrew names, Hebrew men, really. They they came from a region um, of Israel, the southern part of Israel, Judah. Uh, That's where they lived, that's where they grew up, that's where they were named. But at a point in their life, pretty young, they were taken from Judah under captivity all the way here over to Babylon. What happened was there was this king, Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to meet him in a minute. He was a fierce warrior and a great conqueror. And the way he would build his empires, he would conquer all these nations and city-states. And uh, he did something interesting. He would not just conquer them, but, but before, they, before he conquered them, he would take all of their leadership, especially their young leaders, the brightest and best of every civilization, he would take those people and he would deport them home to Babylon. And it was a really smart strategy for two reasons. For starters, if you take all the leaders away then the people are a lot easier to defeat, right? If you take the leadership away, they can't mount a, a, a rebellion, and so they'll be easier to defeat, it'll be easier to build your empire. Not only that, if you take all of the talent, the brightest and the best, the most gifted, if you bring them back to Babylon, if you brainwash them in, in, into being pro-Babylon, then it's a great way to develop leaders for your future empire. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He took these guys, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, along with their friend Daniel, along with some others, but those are the four we know. He took them from their homeland, brought them to Babylon, and that's where they find themselves now. Living under the king of Babylon, the king who destroyed their nation, but now they're in service to him. They're called to serve him. Now here's what I want to say. If you're someone who is struggling To find a way to to live out your life and live out your faith in a world where people around you don't share your same values or share your same beliefs. If you find that frustrating and difficult, like how how do I do this? How do I be a faith filled person when I'm surrounded by people who don't believe what I believe? If that's you, then study these guys because they, they are way ahead of us on this issue. See, what you'll find when you study them is that they aren't guys who refuse to do their job, they don't protest, they don't throw fits. They don't try to turn themselves into martyrs in a public eye. They don't wall themselves off either and become separatists. Instead, what they do is they find ways to do exactly what we've been talking about in this series to become culturally relevant, biblically sound, and outwardly focused. They embody these three things so well, and I wish I could go into detail and show you how, but I can't. You just got to take my word for it. That they embody these values so, so well. They commit to them. And as a result of that, as a result of being different, you know, as a result of, of, of letting the king change their name, as a result of fitting in, as a result of serving, you know, this king, loving this enemy who had destroyed their homeland, being outwardly focused, they get an enormous platform from which to make an impact. They're promoted to leadership positions over the entire province of Babylon. So that's where we're going to find them as we begin this narrative. They've been taken from their homeland. They're embodying these three values. They're, they're, they've been given this great platform, and now their commitment is going to be tested. And so we're going to look today at Daniel chapter 3. Uh, you can look in your Bible there in front of you if you're here in the room at page 881. You can go to UVersion.com or the Bible app from Uversion. Go to live, STJSTL, or you can look along right here. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. So King Nebuchadnezzar, I told you about him, he made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, that's about 90 feet high, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he sets up this monument, this image of gold. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, uh, judges, magistrates, and all of the other provincial officials, so all of the government leaders, he invites them to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. So so they're all gathered around this giant 90-foot-tall statue. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, right? Because as I told you, Nebuchadnezzar had taken people from every tribe, every language, and brought them to Babylon to be put in leadership. This is what you're commanded to do, the herald says. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now kings are so weird, aren't they? Just bizarre stuff that kings do. I mean, this is what happens when you have no one in your life to tell you the truth. They get these crazy ideas. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks, well, to unify my empire, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a 90-foot statue in the form of one of our gods, and I'm going to make everyone bow down and worship it, and I'm going to threaten them with death if they don't worship it. Right? I mean, there's nothing like cultivating sincere religious devotion more than threatening death for someone who doesn't do what you say. I mean, this is not the way to really unify anyone. It's purely a show of force, but that's Nebuchadnezzar. That's that's what he does. Now, obviously, for guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who've been living in this land and serving the king, this is going to create some problems for them. Because number one on the list of, of being a God follower is you don't fall down and worship anything other than God. But let me say this before I go any further. I think this is a really important note for us here today because as things go on in the world and there are all of these controversies about, about us as Christian people, those of us who are Christians, and how we live out our values and, and you know, whether we should bake cakes for, for this kind of wedding or sign marriage license or you know, you know all the controversies. You hear them, you watch people talk about them for hours on the news. There's a great danger that we could take what we're about to hear today and make it our proof text for how to handle all of those situations. And I just want to caution us on one point that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing is not just some moral judgment that they have to make on on some lesser moral issue. This is an issue of gross idolatry. As I said, this is the top of the list. This is the first commandment, if you know the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You, You shouldn't bow down to anything other than me, God says. So this isn't a matter of, oh man, personally, your values aren't my values, and how should I... No, 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 no. Unless you're being called to fall down and worship a God other than the true God, you have not been in this circumstance, okay? So that means you have to carefully apply what what you can learn from this to your life in those situations that you face. So here these guys are, and they faithfully serve the king, and, and you can believe that they have served the king in ways that have challenged them morally. The king has asked them to do things that they don't personally or morally agree with, and they have done it in order to be relevant and outwardly focused while still maintaining their biblical soundness. But now they're going to be tested in a way that they've never been tested before. Let's look what happens. Therefore, so the edict's been given. Therefore, as soon as all these government officials heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down, and they worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time... Some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone, and I mean everyone, who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, this is just a test, I think, that God puts in the Bible, a reading test, um, must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. Are we correct? what happens next. But there are some Jews, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, I love this. This is nuanced here, but I love this. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're tested to compromise their biblical soundness, to worship some other god. They don't have a big protest. They don't make a big deal about it. They don't go to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, we can't do this because we believe in the God of the Bible and you're all wet. And No. In fact, we wouldn't even know that these three guys abstained from this ritual if it weren't for the people who ratted them out, right? There's no big grandstand here. There's no, you know, none of that. These guys humbly, secretly, just quietly decide that they're not going to do what everyone else is doing. See, what you see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is is something that I think we as Christians today forget. They are all about making a difference, not about making a point. And I'm going to tell you, church, we have fallen in love with making a point. We've fallen in love with the idea of being right, of winning debate points, and we've, we've, we've done that at the expense of making a difference. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not them. These other guys rat them out. And now, now here's the thing that I just want to acknowledge, the similarity between our stories, that, that this is where we in life also can expect resistance. Because we're living in a world where, where people, they don't want to commit to stuff anymore. And I mean, that includes us, right? I mean, we aren't good at commitments. Now, now we will talk about being overcommitted all the time, but we are not overcommitted committed We're overscheduled. We're not overcommitted because if we were committed, we wouldn't be overscheduled. See, see, commitment is actual follow-through. We we are overscheduled with a bunch of half-hearted commitments. We know almost nothing about commitment. See, commitment means that when you say yes to something, that means by nature of saying yes to something, you're saying no to a bunch of other things, right? And that's the very reason we're, we're not good at commitment because we don't want to say no to anything, We'd rather say maybe to everything so that way we can keep our options open. Further, I think part of the problem is that in order to really commit to something, that means that you have to begin to reprioritize and reorder your life around that commitment, which is hard, isn't it? I mean, just be honest here. How many of you who are parents have signed your kids up for some sport and you you find halfway through the season, halfway through the soccer season, you're not even going to the games anymore because you've got way too much going on in your life. You started off making a commitment, and you intended to keep it, but you didn't reprioritize or reorganize your life in a way that you could actually honor that commitment. Now, this happens to us in all kinds of things in life, much bigger things than just kids' sports, right? I mean, we talk about our health, and we say, I've got to do something about my health. I'm going to change my ways. I'm, I'm going to commit myself to getting healthy, and as a failure to reprioritize our lives, we end up, what, not making time to eat healthy. So you have to go through the drive-thru. You've got other options, right? So, so I think we can understand that In our world, we're not good at commitment. We are not good at commitment. We understand that. But we're also living in a time, and and this is where there is maybe some connection between us and these guys, where our personal commitments, for those of us who are Christians, aren't going to be understood by everyone else. You know, I talked about tithing today, this idea that you would give 10% of your money away to the church. That's something people don't understand. Trust me, inside and outside of the church, right? I mean, something doesn't make sense. Your commitment to to your family, your commitment to living a lifestyle that's pleasing to God, your commitment to making an impact, it's not going to make sense to people around you, which is going to be tough for us because there's people who are already reluctant to commit as we all are, people who don't know how to reorder our lives based on commitments, people who don't want to say no to anything but want to play the field and keep our options open— When people start pressing us and testing our commitments, it's going to be difficult. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have already firmly decided who they're going to be. And so as this commitment is tested in their lives, they're going to have to decide, are we going to stay on being committed, or are we going to buckle under the pressure? Watch what they do. So um, they've just been ratted out by some other guys who are jealous of them to the king. The king hears about this, and he's not happy, furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Must have been terrifying. I mean, this is a powerful guy. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image of gold that I have made, Very good. So in other words, I'm going to do this another time. And if you do this right the second time, I will forgive you. I will let it go. We will be good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately, no trial, no jury, into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. So Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear. I don't care what your commitments are. You will either do what I've told you to do or you will die. And then he adds this little taunt at the end that's going to come back to bite him. I'm just going to give you some foreshadowing here. What God is able to save you from my hand? He says, you know, you may be committed to your God, but you think that's going to help you against me and what I've got in store for you? Not a chance. Now watch how these guys respond in the face of this tyrant, this powerful guy who's threatening them with death. They are so steady and humble. Just look at their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, you said that no God is able to rescue us. We actually believe that our God is able to rescue us from it. Now, now if you're someone who's kind of new to the church, or maybe this is your first time here, you have a hard time believing this stuff in the Bible, I don't blame you. See, like, there's crazy stuff that happens in the Bible, and you're going to see some crazy stuff in this story here, this, this, uh, this narrative. Um, and yet, this is kind of fundamental to what we believe here, that the God we serve is able to do crazy things, impossible things even. That's kind of what this whole thing is about, that our God is able to do impossible things. So they, they just give this testimony. The God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So again, I love how, uh, how humble these guys are, how, how clear, but how humble. They take a firm stand, but they're so respectful. Again, no, no protesting, uh, no overreacting, and see, this is so not like us in our commitments. With our commitments, when someone tests our commitment, what do we do? We get defensive because we're insecure about them. Or we may overreact. Or we may make a big stand and make some big dramatic, you know, mess of things and and, and say that we're willing to pay the price, and then when the price actually comes to be paid, we we start whining and complaining about how unfair the world is, right? I mean, that's how we handle commitment. That's not how these guys handle commitment. They simply say, hey. This is something that is just fundamental. This is a commitment we have made. And we believe our God, that he can spare us if he wants to, but even if he does not, we're willing to suffer the consequences for this. You know what I think this shows us? I think this shows us that when you're committed to the right things, when you're committed to the right things, you will have confidence in the face of resistance. When you're committed to the right things, you will have confidence in the face of resistance. If, if when your commitments are tested, you freak out or you buckle under the pressure, it may be that you're a person of weak commitment or maybe it's just that you're not yet committed to the right things. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know they're committed to the right things. And so they've got this steadiness in the face of resistance. But ultimately, that's not going to help them. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, again, cultural relevance here, they're not wearing the clothes of Israelites, they're wearing the clothes of Babylonians, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Get this. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot That the flames of the fire killed the soldiers even, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. They made a stand, graciously, they made a stand, and ultimately, it cost them. Now I want to ask you today, this may seem like an overdramatic, outlandish question, but are you willing to die for your commitments? Chances are, as you think about your commitments, you're, you're saying no. And that's good, because there are some things that you've committed yourselves to that, um, that maybe you shouldn't be committed to at all, or maybe they're so low level that they shouldn't even be enter- entering your mind right now. But today, I want to ask you, are, are you willing to die for your commitments? Are there commitments in your life that you are willing to die for? See, again, it just may be that you weren't taught commitment when you were young, and so commitment's a hard thing for you. But it may just be that you've not yet found the right things to commit yourself to. Because when you do, when you find the right things to commit your life to, I think what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do is not too crazy. When you're committed to the right things, then then I think you'll be with them and saying, yes, I'm willing to die for these commitments. Now for us, again, I mean, we're all about talk with commitments, uh, good intentions, no follow-through. We're not willing to actually pay for the things that we say we're committed to. We've got too many commitments to things that don't matter in life. But as I've wrestled with this myself, and I go, okay, Dion, like, ask yourself this question. Are you willing to die for your commitments? My answer is yes, at least to three of them. And there are three commitments that I've identified that I go, absolutely, I'm willing to die for those things. The first is my family. My family. Because I'm the only husband my wife has, I'm the only father my kids have, and, and, and I believe that's just my responsibility. God has given me that responsibility that I should be willing to die for my, for my family. Now, that doesn't mean pander to my family, be clear on this. You know, I think we've got a habit of making our kids the center of, of the universe. That doesn't mean give them everything that they want. That's not what that means. Uh, but it does mean to, to be committed to them and committed to my role, even when that costs me Personally. Uh, The second thing that I, I, in my own life, and again, this doesn't have to be you, the second thing that I'm committed to that I'm willing to die for is Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I'm a pastor. I have to say that, right? Let me be clear about something. Let me tell you why I'm committed to Jesus. It's not because he's the Lord of the universe, although he is. It's not because he's sovereign. It's not because he's God. It's not because it's the right thing to do. The reason personally, the reason for me that I'm committed to the person of Jesus Christ is because he is so committed to me that he died for that commitment. Now, if you just want your mind to be blown, think about this, that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all of the universe, is so committed to you and to us as his people that he died for us. He died for that commitment to take away our sin, to take away our shame, to take away our guilt, to to end the war between us and God. He died for all of that stuff because he was so committed to us. And that's the reason I'm committed back to Jesus. Not because he's God. Frankly, I'm just not that obedient of a person. I'm not. But but because Jesus has shown that he's so committed to me that he would give his life for me. And that he wants me to have life and he wants me to have wholeness and fullness. That's what draws my heart back to him. That makes me say, why wouldn't I commit myself to someone who's shown such commitment to me? Why wouldn't I love someone who's loved me with such a a love that that will take him even to death? Why wouldn't I die for him because he's died for me? I mean, that just seems right for me. Maybe I'm crazy. But that's my second commitment. And uh, the third commitment that I'm willing to die for is living a life of impact. Now, um, you know, leading a church, I'll just tell you, there are lots of easier ways to make a living than doing what I'm doing. And I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. I'm just saying if this were just about a career for me, I wouldn't be doing this. If this was just about feeding my family, I wouldn't be doing this. For me, I feel so compelled not just to love Jesus, but I feel compelled to make an impact in the world around me through the local church for his name. See, I believe that everyone needs to know Jesus. I believe that if you're sitting here today and you're living your life apart from the love of God, that you're missing out on something so incredible, and my heart, my heart breaks for you, and I want you to have a relationship with Jesus because it'll change not just your eternity, but it will, it will change your here and now. And I'm so committed to that idea that, that yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll do this thing. And, and in my mind right now, because this transition's new, I'm, I'm just newly the senior pastor here, I've been here six years, but just newly in this role. And in the back of my mind, there's this idea that goes, wh- what if you mess up, though? You know, what if after 164 years of the gospel being proclaimed to this church, through this church, rather, after 164 years, what if you're the guy who botches it and they close the doors on this place? Right? And I think, no, 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 because I'm so committed to people knowing Jesus that that's worth the risk for me. And if that happened, I would probably die because I couldn't handle that failure. And I think some of you would kill me if that happened to you, and rightfully so. Um, see, when, when you're committed to the right things, the right things, not just to anything, not when you're overcommitted, not when you're overscheduled, but when you're committed to the right things, you will discover that, that pretty quickly you will find things that you are willing to give your life for. But not only that, here's, here's where this is powerful. This is where this gets miraculous, okay? When you're committed to the things that God has declared to be right, when you're committed to the things that God has declared to be right, then not only are, are you willing to die for things, but, but then God is there to help you supernaturally to succeed in ways that are beyond your imagination. Watch what happens here. So these guys are thrown into the furnace. Presumably they're dead, unless you know the rest of the story. Watch what happens. Because they're committed to the right things, God meets them there. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, hey, weren't there three guys that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even the smell of fire. On them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into rubble for no other god can save in this way. I mean guys this is powerful. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who just made a 90-foot gold statue to some other god who is declaring now to all of his his empire that no other god can save in this way. That's a testimony not only to God's power, that's a testimony of what God will do when you commit yourself to the right things. And then he goes on. It goes on. It says then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So not only are these guys spared from the furnace, but they're promoted. Do you get this? They're given, not just prosperity, they're given a bigger platform from which to go on making a big splash. I think there's one final powerful lesson from this that I hope you take hold of as we conclude this series, and that's this. Your cannonball moment will come only after your commitment has been thoroughly tested. See, if you're looking for that cannonball moment in your life, when will God use me to make a big splash? It will come only after your commitment has been thoroughly tested. You can't commit to these things today and expect that tomorrow you're going to make a big splash. That's not the way it works. If you're committed to making a big splash and letting God do that through you, it will only happen after your commitment has been thoroughly tested. If you don't believe me, just look what the father did to Jesus, his son. I mean, Jesus, if you know the story from his life, when when it's near his death and he's there in a garden and, and he's committed to this mission that God has put him on to save the world, to reconcile the world. And yet it's hours from his death and he's in this garden and behind him he hears the sound of guards coming in, soldiers coming in to arrest him to carry him off, to be beaten, and ultimately to be crucified, and he knows that. And, and he falls down, and he prays, and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, if it's possible, get me out of this. He has that moment where he's saying, I don't want to go through with this. I don't want to die for this commitment I've made to this world. Right now, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can do it. And then, and then, a moment later, he says, but not my will but yours be done. Father, I'm committed. And then hours later, Jesus is beaten and crucified, and through that, he makes the biggest splash of any person in all of human history. He takes the sin of the world away. He comes back from the dead. Who else does this? And he reigns forever. You see, even for Jesus, Before his cannonball moment, his commitment was thoroughly tested. And at the end of it, his commitment prevailed because he loved you so much that he was willing to do it. See, if you're expecting that you can just go out and make a big splash in the world without having your commitment thoroughly tested, that's a little naive. But when you're committed to the right things, the things that are close to God's heart, the things that really matter, then even in the difficult situations, even in those points of resistance God will use you to make a big splash. And I just want to tell you that life is too short to live any other way. Life matters too much to go on just living day by day, taking care of ourselves, living a comfortable existence. That's not why you're here and you know it. God created you to make a big splash.